and warm welcome back to this week's episode of Follow the Child, a podcast that was created by two early childhood educators currently in the season of motherhood. Follow the Child is dedicated to listeners interested in conscious parenting and recognizes our children as equal beings who are worthy of our love, time, and respect. Please keep in mind as you're listening in with us today that the information that we're sharing here is intended as generally enriching material only and is not meant to replace that of your doctors or other trusted healthcare professionals. That all in mind, let's go ahead and get started. Hi, Laura. Hi, Wendy. I am so excited to hear your voice today. Um, Laura May Ackley is with us once again. She is a dear friend of mine. And she is a clinical mental health counselor based out of Vermont in the United States. And um, this is your second time with us on Follow the Child podcast. I'm so happy and thankful to have you here again. Well, I'm so happy and thankful that you asked me back. Yes. Uh, First of all, I just really enjoy hearing your voice and recording with you because it's like I get a chance to talk to a great friend. And secondly... Like you have all this awesome wisdom to share with our listeners. And um, did you know that the the episode that we recorded a few months ago was our um, one of our top episodes? It was our second most listened to episode so far. Oh, that's awesome. I did not know that. Yes. So, yeah, people people like it. And um, I'm just really glad to have you on here with us once again. Me too. Thanks. So we're just going to jump right in. Today we were going to be talking about fostering our children's courage um, and how to cultivate uh, shame-free vulnerability. Um, So Laura, vulnerability is like such a buzzword lately. And I think that's a lot thanks to the work of great researchers out there like Brene Brown. Like she's such a a mega hit and everybody like all over the world, like I think that she just like is one of those people who's really like, she's so knowledgeable. She's really vibrant. She speaks in a really open and I think vulnerable way. So she connects to a lot of people. Um, And so she's like really, I think kind of highlighted the word vulnerability um, and brought it on in kind of into the forefront for people. But I mean, even with all of this access to the vulnerability conversation, um, I think anyway, it can still feel kind of abstract. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Would you be willing to kind of define for us what vulnerability is about and why it's so important in ours and our children's lives? Yes. So, for the sake of this conversation, I definitely went and looked up the word so I could have the actual definition. And yes. then um, I'll tell you my thoughts around it. Okay. Uh, so, The definition is the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. And Mm. in that being, you know, the actual definition, which is obviously right on. But I think that a lot of people have this idea that if we're vulnerable, then we're it's weak, you know, that. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me because what I find is, you know, with all the studies and science behind the feelings of connection to other people and Mm -hmm. that we actually, you know, biologically need that. We need connection and to maintain and everyone wants to feel 
like they belong and they want to feel loved and they want all of these things. And then the messages are, and you can't be vulnerable, but like you can't have those true feelings of belonging unless you are vulnerable with people. And like, when I think of it, I think of like being authentic, like being real, like being open about the things that you, you know, like about yourself and the things that you don't like about yourself or situations that, you know, have happened in your life and things like that. I think that there is a lot of shame around vulnerability and like, which is interesting because, you know, shame is all based around like never being enough, like Mm -hmm. good enough for, you know, whatever it is. And like in the idea around parenting, like there's so much guilt and shame that goes into it that people don't always talk about. And it's like, I mean, I've found that it's a huge part of it. Like I feel guilty about anything, you know, like that they, you know, I didn't, my, the lunch I packed for my kids wasn't good enough, or I wasn't able to pick them up at, you know, this right time, or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so yeah. much around that. There's so many moments throughout the day as parents to feel like what you're doing isn't enough, or wasn't just right, or why did I do it that way? Like, always kind of the voice in my head is, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat conscious about it, so I try to catch it, but the initial voice in my head is often, like, so self-critical. Oh, yeah. So self-critical. Yeah. Another um, thing that, like, came up when I knew that we were going to be talking about this topic mm-hmm. and just, like, thinking about it beforehand, um, this conversation that I had recently, it was really recently, like, a couple weekends ago, I met up with a friend that I'd gone to graduate school with and we actually live in the same town, but you know, everybody's busy and work schedules and all that. And we just like never get to see each other, but we finally made a point to see each other and did. And we were just talking, you know, she does the same kind of work that I do. And we were, you know, just openly talking about the things that were great about it and the things that are hard and the topic of like, you know, like second guessing yourself and not, you know, like feeling like, like sometimes you don't know if you did the right thing or said the right thing or helped the person find their own way in the right way. And I was saying how, oh, that comes up for me all the time that a lot of my clinical supervision is around figuring out how, like, to be in the moment with the person and like yeah. do the, the best I can in those moments. And then later, like try to like stop always second guessing and all those things. And her response to that was really like, I would never know that about you, that you, because I also talked about like, you know, that like your self-esteem plays a part in it. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, you wouldn't know that. And she was like, well, I mean, you always just like talk about your stuff and you like own it. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And then later I was thinking to myself, and I was like, yeah, but like, I I do own it. Like I call myself out on my own stuff and 
you know, constantly in front of people, but that like means nothing to how I feel about it, you know, Mm, like, mm -hmm. so it comes across as this like confidence that, oh, she can just own what she struggles with. And like, she's so confident about it, but that does not mean that it's comfortable. Yes. Yeah. I find that very relatable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that says a lot about vulnerability. Like, it never feels comfortable to be vulnerable, you know? I mean, not, it doesn't never feel comfortable, but it doesn't, most of the time it does not. It doesn't come easy, or at least I feel like it does not come easy. Yeah. Because it feels good to share the things that you're confident in, right? Like if you're great at a sport or great at your work trade and you can talk about that, and that's what's on the surface. It That feels good. It's like building more and more confidence around this thing that you're already good at. But when you share something that maybe you're not confident at or that you struggle with or something that you're like disappointed that it went a certain way that wasn't what you hoped for, it's like, it feels like you're exposing a part of your soul. I don't yeah. know. Like, well, I mean, it totally does because you are. You're yeah. exposing the things that you want to keep secret or, you know, that you, that you want feel other safer people... keeping secret. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want other people to know that about you. Totally. Totally. You know, um, the thing that comes to mind for me is that a few weeks ago, I recorded an episode with Shauna about my infertility struggle, a secondary infertility. And I went back and forth for like a few months about whether I wanted to share that publicly on the podcast And I realized, like, I felt so blocked in the other material we were trying to record in the weeks leading up to that because I had, like, basically been sort of blocking myself from sharing this, like, very big part of my life. (laughs) Yeah. And I was trying to speak in this, like, educated way about other topics, uh, things that I am educated about, of course, but, but trying to be present to this other stuff when I was so blocked on such a huge and vulnerable topic to myself, I was like, okay, I just got to come out with it and share my truth. And even though it felt very scary, (laughs) very, very scary to share that, I felt like met with so much um, encouragement and warmth and like a genuine understanding from listeners and people in the little community of our podcast, um, it, I think that that was maybe one of the most touching episodes for a lot of people because people actually connect more when you are vulnerable with them. But it's so hard to just do that first step. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so to hard. put yourself out there. It is. Yeah, it is. And still, there are some moments after uh, airing that episode where I think to myself, like, did I say too much? Like, is that exposing something about myself that I shouldn't have done? But, but, you know, the logical part of me, the 38 year old woman in me now knows that it's okay. It's better to share your truth. Yeah. But the self-doubt still creeps in there. Absolutely. And you know, that also brings up some other thoughts around that, that, so like it, for lots of people, they, don't like they go to therapy and they don't want to tell their therapist the whole truth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll, because they have built this rapport with them and they want, you know, 
their therapist to like them and not yeah. think bad things about them. And then what I find is because I'm also an like I a lot of times need to know more information. So mm-hmm. to get the full picture, you know, like, OK, well, I hear you talking about this. Well, let's talk about I need to ask questions about how things were for you here and in this time in your life and ask these, you know, investigative questions to hear more of the story, which is like, you know, that can be really vulnerability provoking. Like people have to be really vulnerable and like trust that they are safe in that setting. But when people are the most vulnerable, I feel like that's when the real work gets done. Yes, totally. And really, it's not because of anything I'm doing in those sessions. It's because, like, maybe creating the environment to where they can be vulnerable, but all the work comes from them being vulnerable. Yeah. And opening up and taking that first step, like you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so hard. It is so hard. And why do you think it's so important for our children that we're kind of cultivating a a safe space for their their own vulnerability? Well, for lots of reasons, but one of them, I think because everybody is so beautifully unique and I feel like cultivating that in our kids and like teaching them in the any way we can to just be who they are and, you know, like with some things in there, like help around navigating different situations but like because I think giving our kids the idea of who they are is perfectly okay and like them being okay with that makes it even better mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah Laura that's a really good point and you know I I have to say I'll be a little vulnerable here um as I have an emerging or even like in full swing of things toddler right now that, you know, his personality is starting to come out. Um, I was chatting with Laura before we started recording about how much things have changed. You know, it's um, in this first like year, year and a half, it's like, it's so sweet and there's so much enjoyment with the child and I still totally enjoy it now, but the enjoyment has changed completely because now I have somebody whose personality is totally emerging, somebody who um, says no sometimes, somebody mm-hmm. who who wants to set their own boundaries, who wants to test their power, um, who um, experiences uh, big emotional releases when they're yeah. frustrated, sometimes really big, <laughs> sometimes, yeah. in public place, sometimes in public <laughs> places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it happens, I think, for pretty much all parents and children. Um, but uh as it started to happen I started to realize whoa I had been kind of maybe even projecting onto my son in these first years that I had this vision of him that he's like this super sweet like angel child and now suddenly there's this like reality of whoa there's a person here who's now showing me like um his own strength his own personality um like hey I'm my own person hear me roar and yeah, it, it was kind of it kind of woke me up a little bit from the the early years of okay, like I need to honor that there's there's going to be an individual here 
like mm-hmm. a whole new personality. And, and I, well, I'm going to help him navigate that. Like you said, like, I also kind of have to take a step back and be a little vulnerable as the parent to give him a safe space to figure out who he is. Absolutely. And it's and so hard. <laughs> it is so hard. And you know what else I think is really hard for parents is that, that? when some of these challenging behaviors come up, and things that are harder for us to deal with a lot of times it's stuff that we have ourselves you know or that you know one of us one of the parents has that they're seeing come out in the child and then there's like some shame and guilt around that like oh they are this way because of me and then you can go down the negativity rabbit hole of you know, you hate that they're that way because of you and, you know, you want to like squash that in them so they don't have the same thing that you've struggled with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. I found, and I mean, not on my own, like with a lot of guidance and help through it, through like professors at grad school and other things like that, that, you know, when I was having like personal conversations with them to like spin it and look at it at, as a way of like, you know what, you're like, you are the expert on that feeling or emotion that they're portraying that was in you because you've been there, you know how it feels. So using that as material, you know, to be like, yeah, I get it how you're feeling like this, like, and you know, even when they get older, like telling them that you experienced that when you were a kid too. Yeah. And then also like, knowing that as your adult self, how helpful it would have been if someone would have like helped you reframe it or helped you work through it instead of just like, you know, like ashamed. Yeah, exactly. And whenever that shift happened for me, when that, when someone said those words to me, it changed my perspective on so many things of like, gave me a better understanding even though I understood it to begin with, but like, instead of feeling bad that they have whatever this behavior or thing is because it's like mine or, you know, whatever, it was Uh like, yeah, and we can have that and we can move past that too. That's a really good take on things from the people that you were working with in your graduate program. I mean, yeah, because I think the place that I would immediately go to if I see Gucho doing something that I don't particularly even like in myself. And then mm-hmm. I see him doing it. It's like, I get that feeling of, oh no, he got that from me. Like that's something bad in me. And now he's doing it. Like you, just exactly how you described it. It's like, for me, it's like a shame feeling like, oh, I want to yeah. help him hi- help him hide that maybe because it's something that I always didn't like about myself. But I love how you explained that. It's like, hey, I've been there. I can validate for you that this is a feeling that comes up and let's talk about it. Yeah. And that's like a huge way to teach your kids how to be themselves, you know, like that's really vulnerable on a parent's part. And then being able to be vulnerable with your kids, that's what like teaches them to be able to be vulnerable themselves, you know? Yeah, totally. I think that's really important. Um, Laura, I wanted to ask you, so 
something that's always been on my mind, like since, since like the early days, like even since I knew you way back when in Breckenridge and we were working at Little Red Schoolhouse together, mm-hmm. I, I remember even then, like in the early years of early childhood education, thinking like children naturally have vulnerability up until a certain point. It's like something that we come into the world with, I think. Yeah. And then we lose it. So what are your thoughts about that? Why, why do we lose it along the way? Well, I think for a couple of reasons, like one of them being what we just talked about, like, you know, like the messages you get at home and from your parents and like, okay, well, that's not something you want to show the world. So you got to mask that or, you know, get that in check. Like, I think that happens and kids lose the ability to be vulnerable. And then also, and I will say that I've learned that this happens at a different age for all children, but that other people's opinions of them become a thing. And, you know, I used to always think, oh, that was like middle school. And it is absolutely not. Like my first grade son cares about what he wears and what he looks like and what people are going to think about him. And oh, really that young already. Yeah. Okay. And, and then the kicker is my four-year-old, like just the other day, um, he, you know, weather has changed here. It's cold. And he, I was putting on his winter coat that, you know, it's kind of puffy mm-hmm. and he's four years old and was like, I don't want people to think that I'm fat in my puffy coat. And I mean, oh. Gus, my four-year-old is like a little peanut. Like there's like, no fat on his body. Yeah. And it it's just like interesting to me that it's happening sooner. And I mean, mm. his, I mean, maybe those are because he's heard his brother saying them or, you know, because little kids at school, you know, talk about the different things that people have on or whatever. But that's when I think things start to happen. It's like whenever this, they're social, you know, in a social or educational setting with peers their same age and that comes up and I think it can come up in you know kindergarten first grade I think it definitely comes up in middle school yeah and and all in between yeah and there's no way we can really like protect them from that is there there's not I mean well there's not a way to protect them from that occurring I mean there's definitely you know, the messages that we can give them in our home about, you know, to, you know, be who you are and like, you know, self-accept. Yeah. Like to accept. And like, I always say this thing to my kids and they now like roll their eyes. And I might've mentioned this in our last one, um, that you can be anything you want to be, but you have to be kind. And, you know, like the multiple times I've said that and they like say it back to me and roll their eyes and yeah so I I don't think that we can necessarily protect them from that especially because it's happening you know in all ages and with peer groups but we can definitely you know help them look at it from a different perspective like we can always be the sounding board of you know, whatever messages you want to give them around that, like, depending on what it's about, like, to give them positive messages and feedback. And like, also, 
if you have like connections and hopefully who, you know, you meaning whoever, whatever parent has some communication and connection with the teachers and things like that, because a lot of times, you know, our kids get sick of hearing the same, like encouraging messages from us and need to hear it from other adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think having communication around that and like making sure that everyone is aware of what's going on so that there's other ways for other people to give them encouraging messages, but from their perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful. And, and just knowing that it's going to be part of it. Yeah. And I think that as a parent for me, that is so hard to accept. It's hard to, it's hard to picture this person who I've been able to sort of shelter and protect for so far, for the most part, that eventually they're going to be in these social environments, of course, which, yeah, it seems so obvious, like that's, that's what's going to happen. That's fate. But when you've had somebody in your care who is totally dependent on you for the last two years, and then you're kind of like sending them into the world of the unknown, like the social unknown, and you have in your mind and your memory, um, some maybe some good and maybe some hurtful experiences you had socially back in school days it it can feel I think triggering for parents um or at least I'm feeling like worried and vulnerable about sending my son to school because you don't have any say or, or much say in in you know what will happen with in their social interactions with other kids or you just, you aren't going to be there to step in at each moment and guide them. And you have to just kind of sit, take a back seat and trust that the guidance you've given so far is going to hopefully carry them through the tough parts. Yeah. And it's hard and it's scary. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's sad, you know, because you don't want them to have to experience it or, and then at the same time, that's what like creates who, you know, who we all become. And like, it yeah. builds like empathy in them and resilience that, a little bit. Yeah. And knowing like, unfortunately knowing how it feels to have uncomfortable situations like that, then makes you not want to put someone else in that position where they feel uncomfortable in that way. You know, that's a really good point. Yeah. Empathy building is huge. So, Laura, we talked a little bit about already about um, how we can help grow and cultivate vulnerability in our homes. Um, and we kind of talked about it from the side of of the conversations that we can have with them supporting who they are as individuals. But what, what about what do you think about how we are demonstrating our own vulnerability with them as adults in the home? I think, I think personally that that has a big effect. What do you think? Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, I think that what we all like, and me being one of the people that does this, we forget how much our modeling affects our kids, you know? And I think being vulnerable, like them seeing you be vulnerable, like, with your partner and with them or you know if they're having a hard time like and it's making you have a hard time because that often happens and just saying it like I'm having a really hard time with 
you know, are you hitting me right now? Are you screaming right now? I'm going to need to like take a little bit of space, but I'm here when you need me. Like those kinds of things, like that is showing vulnerability. You're saying like, I'm having a hard time and like also seeing, because like, you know, everybody thinks like when they like have a heated conversation with their partner in the next room that kids aren't listening, but they are always. Right. And like being able to be vulnerable with each other and like that can be really hard for a lot of people and especially in an adult relationship too. And especially when you think that no one's watching or no one's listening, but they are. And I think showing those types of things and like owning when you did something wrong, hopefully like your partner owning when they've done something wrong and talking it through together and like being vulnerable with each other is a huge example of how to make that happen, you know? And yes, thank you. I think you really just clarified what I asked in such a kind of jumbled way earlier. It's like modeling it versus just telling it. Yeah. Like because being vulnerability in front of them. Absolutely. And so I'm going to be vulnerable for a minute here because I think that this speaks to like exactly the way that I learn as a human being. So, I mean, when I was like 13, I was diagnosed with back then it was just ADD. Now mm-hmm. it would be called ADHD without hyperactivity. Mm-hmm. But, um, and there were lots of times that like, you know, like, you would sit in a classroom in like mainstream education where a lot of facts were just given to you and you were supposed to just retain that information. And that was supposed to be, then you could test on it and you like could just remember everything. And then actually me going back to graduate school. And I, I knew at this point in my life that I don't learn that way. Like that's not what works for me. And, and that, being this perfect program that I found that was this education model that was like self-directed, you learn how you need to. And basically all of it, like uh, to learn about something different, like conversations with people, like going to see things happen, like actually seeing it happen is why I, or how I could remember all of it. And I think that that speaks to like big lessons about vulnerability and is like, you have to like see it to believe it kind of thing, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Something that we're trying to do in our home is um, apologizing as the adults to our child. So if, and it seems like kind of a weird thing at first because, you know, even we started this before Gucci was even talking and it, I just kind of started um, like I got kind of shouty one night I can't even remember mm-hmm. what the situation was, but I think maybe my husband and I were having a difficult conversation and it got a little escalated. Mm-hmm. And and then I remember I raised my voice and, you know, kind of like picked up, picked up my tone, picked up the speed of my voice. And I realized I stopped for a moment and realized that, oh, Gucho's just watching me doing this. And then I stopped and I just said, I'm sorry. And I didn't even, I don't even know if he understood me at that point. And I don't even know if I was really apologizing to him or it was just kind of like trying to verbally own my behavior that had just taken place in front of everybody in that space. 
Yeah. And, um, and it was really freeing actually. And so since then we've both started that, like, if, you know, one of us kind of loses our cool, um, with mm-hmm. each other or with, or with our child, um, cause it happens that, that we, yeah. we, we make sure to acknowledge that and apologize to him if he either witnessed, um, a not so nice exchange between the two of us or if we got like overly frustrated with him we um we try to own it and acknowledge it and apologize when it's needed that's great that's so I mean you're that's what you're doing you're teaching Guto how to be vulnerable like and sometimes it's hard to say sorry isn't even as an adult (laughs) yeah it's absolutely yeah and like and then like the true apology too like you're saying it but you're also like you're not just saying sorry you know you're saying you're feeling it yeah Yeah. and you're like explaining what you're sorry about and then that gets you to a little bit more get it in check next time I mean you know there's multiple times that it will happen and does happen right yeah yeah, yeah, it's always a work in progress, but I think the more that we're like honest with ourselves when we have our little moments where we lose our cool and then own it, you're you're totally right. The more I've done that, the the slightly easier it's gotten each time to not lose my cool or or that I'm not going to say that that doesn't ever happen, but not lose it as much to such yeah. a degree or or that the apologies start to come easier now, you know? Like it right. just kind of became a healthier cycle. Whereas I can see that if I just tried to act like, oh, I have nothing to be sorry about, or I don't need to apologize to a child that's silly, then it could go in a really different cycle. Absolutely. And not in a very positive way. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Because I know many adult friends in my life talk about that they grew up in um, households where um, adults were having a difficult time, which, okay, all of us grew up with adults having a difficult time. That's, I think, normal. Everybody has a difficult time. But growing up in households where there were, you know, like maybe extreme situations and there was never any acknowledgement of the behavior by the adults, by the parents. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that's so common that it's like it's never acknowledged to the child, like, hey, I'm sorry, you probably heard us shouting in the other room. Um, I'm, I'm sorry you had to hear that, you know, it's, yeah. I think the acknowledging by the parents, it's like, it takes a level of vulnerability and humility also. So yeah, coming back to what you um, summarized for us earlier, it's, it's the whole modeling it versus teaching it. I mean, both are helpful, but I think a lot of us learn more so from modeling. Yeah. And then, and then getting to the point where you can relate the two. Like, oh, this is what you've been trying to teach me and I'm seeing you do it. So this is like, in addition to that, I'm getting a better understanding. Totally. So we've been, we've been talking a lot about the vulnerability topic, but what about how it relates to courage is, because I think I remember hearing Brene Brown talking about vulnerability is kind of like the gateway to courage. What do you think? Do you think yeah. that's the case? I mean, I think that they coexist as one thing in my mind. Like, mm. you cannot be courageous if you're not being vulnerable, and you cannot be vulnerable if you're not using courage to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable and 
to do that, to be vulnerable, then like if there's a, a goal that you want to succeed in, you know, like a lot of people don't go for this dream that they have because they're scared. And like, of course they're scared. We're all scared to do the big things, you know, whatever they are. And to have the courage to be vulnerable and know that throughout whatever task you have to complete to get to this goal, there are going to be times of failure. There's going to be times that you wish that you didn't have to do this one step to get past it or that you're going into something knowing it's going to be hard work and, you know, you have struggles around it. And so I think that it's, to me, like, it's one and the same. And I think that you just, in the past few years, went through a really great example of being, in my opinion, so courageous by going back to your um, continuing education and finishing your graduate degree and becoming a psychologist. I mean, like, for me, that's like so brave because you already um, had one child. You were, um, I think at that time you were pregnant with your second child. Was that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, is it okay that I talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I just, I, this comes to mind for me because I just think like, I, I just think it's like incredibly brave that you did that. And you pulled it off and now you're like doing your dream job and helping a lot of people. And I just think it's like, it's like on the finish side of things, you can look at this and just say like, oh man, she's so brave. I could never do that. Like she's such a brave person and you are brave, but behind the bravery is I think probably a lot of vulnerability took you to get there. Oh, absolutely. And like, I'm, it's very kind of you to say that for you, it looks like bravery. Um, it really me, does. It really to does. To me, going through it, and I really appreciate that because to me, going through it, it was like a shit show. Like, it was like, <laughs> it was such a mix of like, like every emotion. Like, first of all, like, you know, deciding to do this, like, I applied. Then I found out I was pregnant with our second child. Then I got accepted. And then I decided to do it. And then, you know, for the next three and a half years, I was doing that while, you know, parenting and working full time. And I mean, it was like crazy. It was so crazy. And I mean, every day I had to be vulnerable or I wasn't going to make it. You know, I had to like, get out of my comfort zone. But because before this, before I decided to do this, like I was so serious about like doing such a good job at work and, you know, parenting at the time, just Oliver without, you know, with like minimal help from other people, not my husband. Cause Ryan and I have been like in it to win it since, you know, we became parents, especially because we decided to, you know, live really far away from family. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when you, you say know, in it to win it, you mean like you guys have always been kind of supporting each other all along oh, the way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and then we had to like step it up a notch, you know, like um, there had to be time. I mean, we had to figure it out as we went and every semester was different. Um, 
the first semester was like the hardest because I was pregnant and like trying to get all this done and exhausted and, you know, and then um, I think I mentioned this before, like took a semester off to have Gus and then going back was terrible and hard and, you know, all the things. Yeah. And I was just, I mean, I was like, basically for the three and a half years that I was in graduate school, I was an emotional basket case. (laughs) <laughs> but the difference in being an emotional best case and not following through is that I was in a psychology program, you know, like in a clinical mental health counseling program where I also used the resources there and like talked about how hard it was. And it's like know, the perfect place to be. For- uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is like because it was so hard and because I had to ask for help more than I wanted to and like I mean it was of course from professors and things like that but like to ask for a late you know like my papers due on this day and ask for an extension because one of my kids got sick or Mm -hmm. and like I mean I just like there was lots of shame around that like oh I'm having to ask for you know extra time or things like that but like also being able to like give up some of my responsibilities but not really to Ryan and like ask Ryan for help more and in the long run even though it was like so intense and so crazy like we grew as a couple I bet a team you know yeah and even though there were times throughout there that I'm sure we both like questioned all of it yeah (laughs) like what are we even doing but now like getting through hard stuff now feels so much easier because mm, you we grew had to... so much. Yeah, exactly. So I hear you saying that, like, through a lot of that, you you had to ask for a lot of help, like, pretty often. Yeah. And that is, like, I for me, asking for help is, like, such a vulnerable feeling. Oh I'm God, not yeah. good at asking for help, especially in motherhood. I don't know how many women can relate to this, but I have help available close by, but I... I don't know why I torture myself. I do this thing where I will do everything on my own until the point where I'm like exhausted on the verge of sickness, like everything yeah. wrong. And then I will only ask for like a tiny bit of help okay, to, so do, to do with the mothering topic. And I don't know what my problem is, but I think it's a vulnerability issue. Okay. What you just described and you saying, I don't know if other mothers can relate to this. <laughs> I do not know a mother that cannot relate to that. Okay, good. It is like, I, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, but I think that's 100% part of it because you had these kids or this kid or, you know, whatever the case is, and you are supposed to be able to handle it. Even though in like reality, like, you know, children were raised in, you know, in different cultures, like in a village, as a village. And like (laughs) the reason why that's, accurate and true is because it's not feasible to do it every bit of it on your own you know it's really not it's really not yeah and actually the culture that I'm living in now is quite a traditional almost like closer to village mentality culture it's like still very much here that like the grandparents are just assumed to be helping with things and family stays close and you have access to those resources and even so that's like so readily available for me I have this like 
this automatic like shame <laughs> in yeah. my head that's like a shame button in my head that if I ask for help that I think like oh no then they're going to assume that I'm not capable on my own as a mother and what then yeah what then uh, nothing so nothing really is the right, answer yeah well like nothing. in reality nothing but in, <laughs> in our reality, irrational nothing. fears like then we're failing yeah. And, you know, even over two years in now, I still struggle with that. I still struggle to ask for help. So I think that's a big vulnerability topic right there. And that's amazing that you got so good at just needing to take the help when, because it sounds like you just had to at some points in order to continue yes. the program. So that's incredible. Well, and incredible that you guys grew through that. And it sounds like you as an individual grew through so much through that. Oh, absolutely. And I also need to say, in honor of being vulnerable, I have backtracked on that a lot and have found myself needing to work on asking for help more again. Oh, interesting. And I don't know if it, you know, like if it's my own, like, well, I mean, I don't have school anymore. Like, it's just working and kids and, you know, life and schedules and stuff like that. But I find that I am going back into those old ways of I don't need to ask for help. And so I'm right now working on it, like in the present of just, you know what, I need some help. Like if it's, even if it's something small, but it's, but it's like a practice that I'm doing because I still struggle with it. Yeah, it's like a muscle you have to exercise. Yeah. And I think um, on this asking for help topic, I, it just struck me that I think this is really like an American specific thing. Because yeah. in our society, I think that there's like so much pressure to be like an individual achiever and to mm-hmm. like have a lot of individual successes and to just kind of show like, look, I did it on my own. I went to college. I found the great partner we had our family and we're doing it all on our own. We're like our own little like satellite or even like as an individual, if you stay, choose to stay single, single, it's like you, you're always like, there's a lot of pressure on the individual to, mm-hmm. to do it on their own, achieve on their own, um, like self-made man kind of yeah. or self-made, self-made woman, what have you. Yeah. And there, there's a thing there, I think, in a lot of our heads, at least it is in my head from growing up and going to college there, that um, that if you don't do it by yourself, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And I think that that is like 100% why postpartum depression rates are higher in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's the mentality. Like, you're supposed to be able to do it on your own. You're supposed to be able to like, get it all together and you know and then when you fail like right after you have the baby of you know like the first few months of not being able to do it all on your own right instead of that being like of course you're gonna feel that way because it's not humanly possible to get enough rest to be able to do all these things right and then yeah I mean it's like it totally is our society and and it's like honestly something that has to change. And I think yeah. things like your podcast and other people having like honest conversations about the hard stuff is what is going to shift it. I really hope so. I think there needs to be more light shined on this because it's like 
things like PPD, postpartum depression or anxiety are, it's like kind of a buzzword that's out there now, but at the same time, there's still not a lot of open talk about it. Yeah. And there's, I think also kind of like a negative stigma about it because of the, because exactly of the reasons we were just saying that there's all this pressure out there that you should quote unquote, be able to, to do it all. Um, and yeah, it, it's got to change. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a disservice to not only the mother, it's a disservice to the child that there's this kind of a pressure because how can you, how can you do right in that situation when, when it's all on you and, and it's like, look, you've been handed a human being with which you, you didn't have any job training for this. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody, you, you don't <laughs> no. go through, you don't go through a job training. You don't get a manual on how to raise an entire human being for the next 18 years. You're, as you said, you're sleep deprived. You're recovering from probably some form of birth trauma. Cause let's be honest, birth is a trauma in a lot of ways, um, yeah. physically to your body and sometimes mentally and emotionally. And it's like all this at once, plus the hormones, it's, yeah. it's a total, it's a total recipe for, I need help. And yet you're not supposed to ask for help. Yeah. And it's, it's not benefiting anyone. Okay. Wendy, when you mentioned the thing about, um, anxiety being like a buzzword and, you know, postpartum depression and things like that, and I can speak about this like in from one of my own experiences not of like and I don't even know if this was before I was a mother or something but it was in a work environment setting and I mentioned something about having myself having ADHD and anxiety Mm -hmm. and the reaction that I got from the person that I was talking to was this like you could see the shift in the person's face about how they felt about me. Like that there mm. was like that this must be like now I don't like add up or something like that. Or oh, oh like I see some like feel sorry for me kind of thing. And in the moment, it to be honest, it like it pissed me off a little bit, but at the same time, it kind of made me go back in. And be like, okay, obviously I can't share this information with people because, A, I don't want that reaction. And, B, not everybody gets it. But then now, years later, they do get it. And they have, you know, like, we all have it. Like, people act like anxiety is, like, this diagnosis that people get. But it's a human emotion that we all experience sometimes. And, like, yes, some of us experience it more intensely than others or you know like some of us have it to a point where it is you know a some sort of disorder in our lives but at the same time there's so many ways to talk about this kind of stuff vulnerable about it Mm -hmm. that can make people just feel more connected you know more like more inclusive yeah Yeah. And yeah, Laura, I think totally agree with what you were just saying. And also, um, as you were saying, I think everybody has anxiety to some degree. And additionally, I think there are some people that have always had anxiety in their lives and 
they still, as adults or even elderly people, probably don't even realize that they have anxiety because they've always just um, suppressed. Oh yeah, uh, suppressed uh, the realization that that's the emotion that's happening. Does that yeah. sound like something to you? This is my own personal theory, not being a, a professional <laughs> in this, I of mean, course. But I, I feel like in my personal life, I know people or I've witnessed people through my years of living who I know that they struggle with anxiety, but they probably aren't maybe even aware of it. Or maybe they are, but they like, um, they've so distanced themselves from that that it's not a conversation that they could ever have. And I think that that's kind of a product of our society as we're talking about this, like, it's like, there's a shame factor there. So it's like, okay, so even if I have that problem, I'm just going to get really distant from that diagnosis or that definition, because that's not me. I don't want that to be me. Yeah. And I think that's the part that is so hard because first of all, if you don't talk about the stuff, you know, like whatever it is, like, it manifests in different ways. And if it's not manifesting like outwardly to other people, it can manifest physically in your body, you know? And yeah, if there's any like genetic heart conditions or, you know, like different things that you already, you know, it's hereditary and then you're experiencing and have been experiencing your whole life, some sort of, deep-rooted anxiety that you don't talk about or access or try to get it out, then it actually has physical effects. Yeah, it's really like detrimental. It's, it's really the case, isn't it? It's like scientifically proven that you can have these physical manifestations of the stress. Yeah. And that, you know, like people are just now starting to accept that things like yoga and 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 that does not work for everyone, but like right. things like that and like, and going to therapy and talking to people and not just like, okay, owning it to your medical doctor and starting to take medication. Like, yeah, a lo- that is helpful. And for a lot of people and, but also talking about it because yeah. one doesn't fix, you know, like taking a medication, isn't going to fix it. Taking a medication and then like, talking about things that is the way to fix it and a lot of people choose not to take medications or once they've like processed it and talked about it and those kinds of things you know then you can get off of a medication sometimes or Mm -hmm. you know that's all like personal opinion and there's lots of opinions about medication around this kind of stuff but the fact that withholding it from yourself and the rest of the world doesn't benefit anyone physically or emotionally yeah at least of all you the being the yeah. person who is who's trying to disconnect from it absolutely I will just go ahead and share my own vulnerability here and I don't even know if I want to call it a vulnerability but in kind of in light of the stuff that we're talking about society wise I go to therapy I don't think I've ever said that on the podcast I go to therapy twice a month I love it. I I have an awesome therapist. She's like, for me, it's like such an ideal time for me just a couple times a month to check in with somebody who is neutral person who I trust, who I feel safe with and to go in deep on the hard stuff and really like really go there and 
like honor those moments that rattled me earlier in the month or maybe even earlier in my own life in childhood it could be or you know some other experiences along the way that I didn't really ever get to process yet and it's like that's my neutral safe place where I can process stuff and holy smokes it's been like such a godsend for me I I mean I don't know if I could say this, but I think therapy could be something great for any person. Even if you think like you're totally just smooth sailing, feeling great, like life has been easy for you. That's awesome. But it it never hurts to just like have a, a, a neutral, safe space to share some stuff. And I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm obviously I'm biased, but I right. agree <laughs> like, to no avail that everybody should have a therapist everybody because everybody needs like, you really an think so too yeah yeah I think it everybody too. needs an unbiased sounding board of, or just like a place to just go and know that you can say all the things that you need to say but don't want to and I mean absolutely I think everybody could benefit from therapy yeah yeah, me too. And, you know, it's interesting for me kind of how our conversation today took a turn because we really started in deep with the vulnerability topic, but then we kind of came out on the other end of the anxiety topic. And I think mm-hmm. that's so interesting because it's, I kind of see it like a, um, not a balanced beam, like a, a seesaw. Like if you're kind of trying to squelch the vulnerability and be kind of more of, you know, more taking yourself seriously, more stoic, more like I'm doing it all by myself kind of person, like proud. Mm -hmm. Then when the times in my life, at least when I've tried to be more like that are the times that actually I am harboring huge anxiety. Like you can be sure that when I, you can be sure that when I'm looking my best, like a lot of makeup on great outfit, acting like I've got it all together. Those are usually the times that I'm the most anxious, windy. Yeah, the- <laughs> you're trying to cover it up, right? Yeah, you're trying to cover up all the imperfections. You're trying to to convince people, I'm, I'm okay, I've got my shit together, like I've got it under control, things are smooth here. At least this is me talking from my own personal observation of myself, um, and maybe some people can relate. And then on the other end of the seesaw, like when I am, if you catch me, you know, like in my sweats, in my workout clothes, you know, no makeup, relaxed mama mode just walking in the forest with my kid nothing to prove to anybody those are the moments when probably I will have a conversation with somebody and just open up and tell all my stuff and it's you know what I mean like when we're putting on kind of like a mask like um a symbolic mask of ourselves to the world so I think also this happens a lot in social media and I think I've been totally guilty of this too it's like when you want to you know, portray yourself in a certain way, like, hey, look, I've got this part of things all together, all figured out. I think those are usually the times for myself when I have um, maybe had some insecurities regarding that exact topic. But then on the yeah. other hand, when I'm when I'm finally able to just share like, hey, we have infertility, by the way, this has been going on for the past few months. And actually, this is the main topic in my head, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, those, are, those are the times when I felt most like relaxed and like, okay, I'm really like sharing my my true self. And it's like, yeah, this from the vulnerability conversation to the anxiety conversation, it's so interesting for me because I think, at least for me, I experienced these two like very, um, very related to each other. Yeah. Well, and... The one thing I would add to that, I think a lot of people 
do exactly what and feel like you do, like the making yourself look like you have it all together. And I think there's also an another level to that, that some people, when they aren't feeling that way, try to get themselves all together so that they internally feel more together. Oh yeah. Too. So I think that there's like lots of reasons why that could be happening for people. And yours is definitely something that other people experience too. Okay. Um, yes. And I, cause I'm drawing actually specifically from two weeks ago, we went to our first adoption center appointment and I remember oh, wow. that day. Yeah. I, it was like the first day in months that I like put on makeup, put on a nice outfit, like blow dry, yeah. washed my hair. And I was like, what am I doing? What I haven't put this much effort into how I look in like, since the last time we attended a wedding, let's say. Yeah. And then I realized like, oh, I'm really freaking nervous right now. I'm not in a vulnerable state because, well, actually I was in a very vulnerable state in, internally, but I was trying to prepare myself to show these people who we had to interview with at this um, adoption agency that I look like a put together person, that I look like oh, somebody, yeah. that I look like somebody who does a good job at home, somebody that like is a good parent, somebody that's, um, you know, trying to convince people that, that I've got it figured out and got it together. And so that was me being, trying to put on a mask of total not vulnerability, but also um, having, trying, also kind of like covering big anxiety at the same time, because I was super nervous at that. Well, yeah. And you knew that you were going into a situation where you were going to be judged. And I was, and, and actually yeah. it, it truly was like that because, um, their job is to judge, you, you know, to, to, yeah. to judge you, to secure a, a safe home for these children. So they kind of have to do that. It's not a nice process. I'll just say, but, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's just like a reflection I'm having right now of, um, my own, like covering vulner vulnerability, but also having big anxiety in one moment. Yeah. That's interesting. That's um, interesting. Laura, I think we should wrap up soon. But one thing I wanted to touch on is the topic of like worthiness or children's self-worth. And I kind of wanted to hear how do you how do you see the sense of worthiness fitting into all of this? And how can we kind of as the parents as, as much as is possible, how can we help them protect their sense of being worthwhile people? I think that I mean this is like so dependent on the child yeah but you know talking up their strengths talking about things that some might see as weaknesses in our kids as it being part of them and a part of them that they sh should equally love and help them find reasons why they should love the all the parts of them whether, mm -hmm. whether they're harder parts or easier more loving you know easily for people to like parts and I think just in our, like in ourselves as parents, owning that we have that as well and trying to also model that, like the benefits mm. of loving all the parts of yourselves, even the parts that are harder and telling that to our children, you know, like even if they're going to get all these messages everywhere else, like just reminding them that they're great just the way they are and I hate to use the word perfect just the way they are because I don't think anyone's perfect and I think there's so much beauty and imperfection mm -hmm. and 
which I think pointing all of it out to them and just letting them know that, you know, we're all unique individuals and we're here to, you know, enjoy life, but there's also going to be times that we don't and that's okay too. And that's part of it. And just as a parent trying to get past your own things to be able to give those messages to your kids is to me the most beneficial. Mm, And that's a big one. And that takes a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. A lot of work. I'm trying to do that work right now and it's tough, tough stuff. It is. I mean, I think as a parent, that's like constant work too, that you're always doing it, you know? Yeah. And there's always going to be new stuff. As we were saying earlier, it's like you get one section of, of the childhood topic figured out and then they're past it. And then there's a whole new learning curve. Oh yeah. And you're like, Oh, right. When I had that one nailed now there's a new one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Laura, thank you so much for recording with us again today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And I love any opportunity to get to talk to you. Yay. Okay. And good luck with all the decisions that will be made about next steps with you guys. Oh, thank you. It's, yeah, it's um, a huge topic for us. Um, But also, I'm kind of taking it with a little bit more distance these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few months ago, it felt much more like heavy and um, kind of like looming more so. And now, now I think I'm in a better headspace about it. Also, thanks to therapy, I will add. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and being vulnerable, and, and being vulnerable, and opening up about these things, and sharing the story, and connect. And actually, also another quick side note benefit of sharing our infertility story is that I connected with like so many women. Um, after that podcast, um, who I didn't know before, um, who are dealing with the same thing, uh, either infertility or secondary infertility. And, you know, that's like such the gift of vulnerability is once you share your story, a few other people are like, Hey, me too. Me too. I also had that. And then it's like, it takes a big weight off. Cause you realize like, Oh, I'm not the only one who's dealing with this. Duh. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that, what the statement you just said was like, the beginning of this whole conversation was being vulnerable to feel connected and to be real and authentic. And that's exactly what you're doing. I hope so. So I'm trying to stay on that train. It's slippery. And sometimes I feel like I fall off and I get sad and frustrated and, you know, like with any kind of a bigger life challenge, there's ups and downs. And like, you think you've kind of got it sorted out mentally and then, and then you have a bad day and it's hard again, but Thank yeah. you for your wishes in general. Yeah, I think we're we're kind of plugging along, just putting one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And yeah, yeah, we're, we're feeling a little bit lighter about it lately. So thanks. Sure. Okay. okay. Well, thanks for having me. And yes. I will talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. Take care, Laura. Okay. Bye. Bye.